Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. This is one of our tech Q&A sessions uh, with Rob and Warren. So uh, we've got Rob Weaver, he's our senior technical editor across all our titles. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, um, pleased I got that out on the bike yesterday as it's tipping down in rain today. Classic British summertime, hey? Yeah, Bristol Rainwatch, hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Warren Roster, who's our uh, senior road technical editor. How's it going, Was? Yeah, very good, thanks, mate. Very good. Um, Excellent. Yeah, yeah, like Rob, it's been a topsy-turvy week after 30 degrees all last week. So, uh, still getting out, just getting wet. Good. Are you out on road or gravel, what you're riding at the moment, Was? Uh, this week is actually mainly road. I mean... Last week was a bit more of a split, um, kind of half road, half gravel. Um, big week as well last week. It was like close to 400 miles from Monday to Friday. Um, not quite so many this week because, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm giving up after a couple of hours of riding in the rain, as it were, rather than riding all day. <laughs> That's fair enough. Uh, Rob, what are you riding at the moment? <laughs> I can't tell you then. <laughs> I spent two days riding... I spent a couple of days riding some stuff that's yet to be launched. So, um, nice. yeah, I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, I was riding something yesterday. I can't talk about it either. So, so safe to say it's very, no- well, say it's very nice. I've been uh, riding things I can now talk about as of yesterday. So I've been riding the new uh, Yeti SB115, which um, I can talk about because it's uh, gone live. So there we go. You like it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I did. I mean, it's a it's a real it's an interesting little bike. They've, they've taken the SB100 XC race bike and kind of down countryed it. So uh, longer fork, longer stroke shock, and maybe a little few tweaks to the to the linkage. Um, yeah, yeah, they've done a the suspension works real well. That switch infinity is pretty cool. Right then, well, um, we, we've got a load of questions uh, that have come from. Uh, our readers on social media um so we'll, we'll crack on um some mountain bike questions some road bike questions um but we'll start with a mountain bike one so rob um one of our readers is wondering what's best for trail riding xc shoes that look like roadie ones or downhill style flat shoes that take cleats oh uh i would say try and find a happy medium between the two mm-hmm. so the cross-country shoes would probably be well if you find the right pair they can be pretty comfy but equally, yeah. they're likely to have either a really hard plastic or a carbon fiber sole, which is going to be pretty awkward to walk in. And, you know, if you're trail riding, chances are you will be scrambling up the odd hill from time to time and, you know, walking around cafes or pubs at the end of a ride. So while the XC style shoes are going to be super efficient um, for power transfer and things like that, they will, you know, they, they, they do have their downsides. Um, and on the flip side of that, obviously, the downhill style shoes, which generally take the form of, you know, like a skateboard style trainer, tend to have a bit more flex through the sole. They might be, um, they might have more protection and more padding on them to help protect your feet a bit better when riding downhill. Um, and as a result, going to be heavier and less efficient to actually pedal in. So uh, what I would say is try and find something that kind of sits in the middle. And, and uh, there are some good examples Shoes like uh, the Shimano ME7. I know you're a big fan of that shoe in particular, um, which manages to sort of, it combines the two almost. So it's quite sleek. It has uh, 
handy features like a lace flap, which means you're a little bit better protected in, you know, rain or puddle splashes and stuff like that. Um, and the sole has just the right amount of flex around the toe and it will cut the heel nicely so you won't get any heel slips so you can walk comfortably off the bike. Equally, it's stiff enough that it will be efficient when you're putting the power down. I guess the only downside really with that shoe is that it costs in the region of £180. So it's pretty pricey, but there are cheaper alternatives. Um, Shimano do the AM7, which is probably a little more flexible than the ME7, but it's significantly cheaper. Um, and then there's the likes of specialised clip light. So that uses two bow dials and a little Velcro strap across the top. It costs £140, £145, I think. Um, again, it's a bit more giving it than uh, an, XC, an XC shoe, but uh, it is, yeah, that, that bit stiffer than the downhill, than the standard downhill shoe, and it's a little bit lighter as well. So great for sort of, you know, big all-day rides, high mileage, stuff like that, but equally you can wander around and you're not... Um, clipping and clopping and sliding here and there and everywhere when you walk on roots and rocks and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah, I guess the, I mean, the other thing to sort of consider with all this is, is the pedals that you're using. If you've got like a a, a SPD pedal without a, a cage around it at all, you know, more of an XC style pedal, then having that stiffer shoe is going to be beneficial because it needs a sort you know, your foot wants the support of that stiffer sole. Whereas if you've got a big, you know, platform around it, you can get away with those sort of more trail or towards a downhill orientated shoes which maybe don't have the which have a bit more flex so you want a bit more support so exactly maybe think about that as well um as you said rob like the me7 is you know my go-to trail shoe but it is also very expensive so there are cheaper options out there um as you said i'm testing a few sub 100 pound trail shoes at the moment um and the names all uh, have run away from me right now. Um, but Shimano have, uh, is it an ME3, I think it's called, um, which kind of looks a bit more XC, but does have sort of the the sort of the flex and the comfort that I've sort of found from the ME7 um, with a few less features. There's no lace flap. Um, it's a couple of Velcro and a Boa. Um, but that's, you know, like a nice little option. Um, and Jira have a couple of reasonable options at that price point as well, sort of the 80 to £110 mark. So... Um, I mean, those are RRPs, you know, we have to quote these, you can all shop around uh, and maybe find a deal on them as well. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Wicked. Okay, well, um, Warren, we're, we're, we're going to talk road tyres. Um, is there a puncture protective tyre, the likes of uh, the Durano Gator Skin or Four Seasons, uh, available in tubeless for a 700 by 25 mil uh, road wheel? Um, well, yes. Um I mean, first off, I'd say, you know, one of the best advantages of going tubeless is you've already got improved puncture protection over a standard clincher, um, especially when it comes to things like pinch punches. But if you are looking for a bit of extra protection, I'd probably say something like Schwalbe's one TLE, because that gets okay. race guard protection. Um, and it's a really great tyre, and it also comes in a really cool-looking skin wall. Um, <laughs> Continental don't yet have any of their tougher tyres in tubeless. You know, they came a little bit late to the, to the tubeless party, but... The 5000 T has a brilliant tyre. Um, Hutchinson, they've got a couple of options. They've got the Intensive 2, which is built for kind of long-distance durability, and the compound's got cut protection. And they've also got a Fusion 5 all-season, which is a year-round tyre. That's got hard skin reinforcement too. And then Michelin have got a new new um, range of cheapest tyres, the Power Road TLR. That gets an Aramid protection strip built into the, you know, to the running surface. Um, but it's a really good question because now I think the road tubeless market is really starting to mature. Um, so I think we're going to see a few more all seasons and tougher options pretty soon. When I used to have like commuting tires and stuff, you know, you get the, I had like a short marathon classic with the, um, that Kevlar strip in it. it. It absolutely killed the ride quality. Is that still the case now these days? Or are these, you know, the tires with extra protection still ride a little bit rubbish or? Um, no, no, it's come on. It's come on a lot. You know, when I've seen, you know, things like a, you know, using an aramid strip rather than a reinforced casing, you know, um, rolling resistance has improved a lot. It, you know, they've, they've, you know, they've, they've got quicker um, to the point. I mean, it's something like, um, you know, uh, this isn't available in cheapest yet, but Victoria's Corsa um, all seasons one. I can't remember the exact name of it. 
that's one of the you know the swiftest tires I've used in a long long time. It just feels beautiful. Uh, you know that's the, that's got the graphene compound in it, so you know the the rubber seems to stretch and, and mold in corners fabulously well. But it's a really tough tire with it, you know. So they have come on a lot. But I think when you're looking at things like the Marathon, that's more of a a, a traditional kind of touring tire. Mm, so that's sure. built to do you know thousands of thousands of miles and you know, um, but not at speed as it were. So I think as long as you go for a brand's racier option with protection rather than you know their more commuting or touring focused ties, you know, you, you you will find some good ones out there. And do you, do you think these protections, you know, are very advantageous? Do they do they work really well, or are they is it a bit marginal as to whether it's worth it? Or I mean, it's really hard to judge. You know, um, I think if you're looking for a tire for a lot of longevity, then if anything where the compound's got cut protection is well worth having. Um, you know, especially. Weirdly, especially on on like weeks like like this week in the UK, where we've had a really really hot week, so all the roads have baked dry, and then you get rain, uh, and all that rain just brings up those little sharps and flints to the surface. So you'll go out and ride, you'll come back, and you know um, you know a, a really nice soft racy tire, you'll come back and you'll find it's got cuts and splits all over it. You know nothing yet critical, but it only needs that little, you know that that little deeper cut to actually you know almost write a tire off really. Um, and when you're talking at the minute, you know a road tire can be anything. From you know up to 75, 80 quid each. You know that's that's a serious uh, that's a serious dent in your pocket. Yeah, you you mentioned the Vittoria graphene um, compound. What's that all about? Well, they've basically they've used a, um, a a a graphene layer within the, within the rubber um, on the on the surface, and you know graphene is like this sort of super light wonder material that's incredibly strong, and it has this really weird effect on those tires that when you're you're not loading the tire sideways. You're just running, riding straight in a straight line. Um, they feel incredibly quick. They they almost, I mean, they, they make a weird noise. To be honest, they almost buzz along the road. But then when you go into a corner, because of the 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 the, the quality of the graphene weave within the rubber, they 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 seem to stretch. You know, they seem to sort of spread. So you get this in, insane amount of grip in in corners. You know, you can really really push the limits of what's effectively a slick tire, and. You know, I've been running a set of courses on one of my own bikes now for well since they launched, which is like over two years, and they're still good. You know, they they seem to wear mm-hmm. e- very very evenly, so you don't get bold spots. You get even wear throughout the tire. And, you know, and I've probably put probably best part of thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred miles into those tires, and they're still going. You know, they're they're getting thin, but they they're not on the casing yet. There's still rubber there. You know, it's um. Uh, it seems to be a smart imp- implementation of some, you know, interesting tech that's gone into those tires. Wicked. Okay. Well, um, sticking with tires, Rob. Um, someone's asking, what is the all well the best all round mountain bike tire for year long use? And this is a bit of a potentially contentious one, <laughs> and maybe it depends a little bit on on what you're riding. But you know, someone who rides maybe slightly more aggressive bikes, longer travel stuff. Um, what do you run? Sort of, what would you run year round if you could? Um... Okay, so yeah, like you said, it it is a really tricky one, and tires. I think there's so much choice out there now. It is very much down to sort of personal preference, to a degree, and then things like rim width um, and the terrain you're riding on, obviously, is, is another big factor to take into account. Um, but in terms of if we're going purely just down the route of looking at tire treads. Um, I guess for me, um, I generally tend to run the same front and rear. I don't tend to go for a faster rolling rear tire. As we're talking about just keeping a set of tires on for the year, bearing in mind, you know, maybe in the summer I might stick a slightly faster rolling tire on. But for the most part, when I'm slowing down riding steep stuff, I want to be able to, you know, use the, the back tire and grip as much as I can as well. I know I'll probably get slam for saying that but you know i i like slowing down i get too scared do you, like, you like your grip too yeah i like my grip yeah so um yeah generally i would go for something nice and predictable like the maxis high roller twos i'm still a big fan of those they've been around for a mm-hmm. long time now or um the minion dhr twos and generally uh i run so i've got i've got some high rollers on on one bike actually uh both in double down casing i know you could probably go lighter on the front but um 
I guess I'm at a point where I just, if I'm riding, say, my own bike, the last thing I want to do is have to faff and stress about puncturing tires and all that. I'm not too worried about overall weight. And um, yeah, the, the double down casing's pretty much spot on for most of the stuff I do. It's, you know, those have survived a lot of laps at Bike Park Wales, which is really rough, or some trails there are really rough. Um, equally, I, I've spent a lot of time on the new Asagai tyre from Maxis as well, which is another good one, uh, in the XO Plus casing. So I use that on the front, which is a, which is a good choice. But yeah, for me, something like the High Rollers, High Roller 2s, um, maybe in Max Grip on the front and Max Terra on the back, that 3C compound, I'd say is a, is a good sort of year-round tread. It seems to shed mud well enough, um, and there's enough bite in there when it does get soft. They're not going to work as well as a sort of, you know, like a full-on spike or maybe something like um, a Magic Mary, which has taller, squarer tread blocks. But I think there's, it, they're a good compromise when it comes to, you know, rolling resistance and, and things like that. So across the span of a year in a multitude of conditions, that's probably what I'd go for. Mm-hmm. Nice and predictable, consistent, really good shape to them. Um, it, I feel like I always know where I'm at with those tyres. When I get back on a bike with those, I feel really confident and really happy. Yeah. Did you say you're running um, a Minion DHR2 on on the front of a bike as well? I've, I run them on, uh, yeah, both front and rear. Front and rear. And, yeah. and, and obviously like the DHR stands for well, DH rear because it have a, a DHF as well. So what yeah. what's the advantage of running that rear tyre on the front? Um, well, because Maxis offer it in so many different compounds it seems like you know i'm not being penalized because i can still get a soft enough front tire so it's not um i think there are some brands which will will offer certain tires i think uh, wtb only do the the judge i could be wrong but when they when they launched the judge which is their sort of what they say is their rear you know rear specific tire it only came in their fast rolling compound mm-hmm. um so yeah, uh, Maxis offer pretty much every tire in a multitude of different compounds. So, it you know it's a good tire on the rear, and it's a it's still a really good tire on the front. Um, okay, it, it seems to work well for me anyway. Yeah, we're good. Okay, um, so Warren, we're, we're going to go back to to curly bars, and someone's asking what the real difference is between a cross bike and a gravel bike. Um, surely they're the same thing a road bike with knobbly tires and obviously on the on the face of it they do look very similar um but would you say that there's much difference or what what, what is the difference yeah, well yeah they, they they may look very similar in spe- especially in some cases of your your more racier gravel bikes you know think of something like the uh, the new Cervelo, you know um or Bayer's terror um but then you know gravel bikes are a really diverse breed um but I'd say, you know, general rule, a cross bike will have more aggressive geometry. It'll be a bit steeper in both head and seat angles. You know, these are bikes to, that are designed to be raced for an hour, you know, at most. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a gravel bike needs to be comfortable enough to be ridden all day or longer. You know, if you think about gravel events, they tend to be, you know, epic distances in the main. Um, cross bikes traditionally have a higher bottom bracket. You know, that's a that's a carryover from, you know, days of yore when, when bikes ran toe clips rather than clipless pedals, you know, you needed the ground clearance. Um, and, and weirdly, that just still persists. Um, I guess it's something that everybody's just got used to. And also, you know, if you think about cross racing, the UCI restricts tyre size um, to in cross races to 33 millimetres wide. Uh, most gravel bikes mm-hmm. can go much, much bigger than, you know, entire width than that. And you're also more likely to find on a cross bike that the top tube is much more horizontal. You know, it's less sloping. It's less like mountain bike styled. And that's the simple reason, you know, cross, cross racers need to be able to shoulder the bike. They need to be able to carry it and run with it at some point. Um, but then also, you know, gravel bikes tend to be more versatile. You'll get rack, um, guard slash fender mounts and multiple bottom mounts. And not to mention, you know, dual wheel size compatibility all things that are cross bike that's intended to be racing, therefore it needs to be light. They just tend to do away with, you know. Um, so yeah, you know, ostensibly they may look similar, but actually, you know, the differences can be can be vast. 
Okay, so um, I guess if you were going to go and buy one now, you know, maybe have a think. If you're going to race, obviously get a cross bike. But if you're probably just looking for some, you know, dirt tracks, that sort of thing, maybe it would be worth jumping on this uh, gravelly bandwagon and, and going with a dedicated gravel bike. Yeah, or, or you know, or, or, it, or it depends on you know what what sort of riding you intend to do. You know, if you're going out for a, a quick couple of hours blast, you know, down down some trails, you know, with your mates, um, or you know, or hitting you know hitting byways and bridleways then you might not ever need the ability to you know carry your house on your back sort of thing um so so mm-hmm. one of the lighter racier gravel options you know i'm thinking you know like the Savello, like um cannondale topstone you know that sort of thing where where they're more they've more come from a race end of the end of the spectrum you know as opposed to say something from you know surly or or you know one of the or one of the genesis style bikes where you've got every fixture and fitting you could ever want you know if you're never ever going to go bike packing why you know you don't necessarily need all the accoutrements that a bike comes with for that so it's more <laughs> just decide on what you want to do all right well um speaking of deciding what you want to go and do uh rob is um should i get a hardtail or a full suspension bike at one thousand pounds obviously thousand pounds bike to work scheme sort of price also like a really good entry point into mountain biking um and there's some great options kind of for both um, at that price point, just about, isn't there? Yeah. Um, I would say it's uh, worth really thinking about what sort of stuff you want to ride. Um, because if you are looking to use that bike, and uh, you know, if it's part of the cycle to work scheme, maybe you are looking to commute a bit on it as well. And at which point, you know, things like, well, kind of like was has already mentioned, you know, rack mounts, things like that are really useful if you're going to be carrying your stuff to work. And they're things that you generally won't find on a full suspension bike. Um, obviously, uh, when you compare the two, you're generally going to get, I guess, a bit more bang for your buck on a hardtail when it comes to the spec, because obviously money isn't going into that full suspension design, the rear shock, you know, the complexities that come with that. So instead, you'd get a frame and you're going to hopefully get some pretty decent stuff on there, including hopefully a relatively decent suspension fork at that price. Um, That's not to say that there aren't good full sus bikes, um, because obviously with the likes of uh, Calibre, I mean, I know Guy Outdoors is going through some issues at the moment and fingers Mm. crossed uh, that brand will survive. But, you know, the, the likes of the Boss Nut, really helped turn around that part of the market i think offering a really solid spec on a frame that genuinely worked well you know um i think it was a long time ago where if you were to go down that route and buy um you know uh, a thousand pound full suspension bike the geometry was going to be fairly traditional it was going to be quite limiting and as soon as you got on the trail the spec you know the specs were generally pretty poor they were almost like place fillers for some brands Whereas I think now it's a, you know, those bikes can genuinely compete with bikes that are, you know, almost twice their price, which mm-hmm. is seriously impressive. But again, I think it's it's all about thinking about the sort of stuff you want to ride um, and also taking into account things like if you're not too handy when it comes to maintenance, a full suspension bike will generally, because there's more moving parts on it, cause more issues. So you're going to generally have to spend more time tinkering fixing maintaining it so if you're riding it you know if you're not using it to ride to work on and it's genuinely just you know you want to go and ride trail centers and mess around in the woods a really good um hardtail with uh, more progressive geometry will be able to do the job but you're certainly going to reach a point where i think you know especially if you're riding with your mates who all have full suspension bikes where maybe you're going to want a full suspension bike. So again, it's just, it's just, it's all about, you know, weighing up what's available and, and what you can do on it. I think another thing to take into account at, at that price point is, um, and I think uh, Seb, Seb brought it up in a recent uh, bike test, in fact, was due to the fact that they're spending so much money uh, or, or those bikes, you know, they'll, they'll try and spend the money where it really counts on the specs or the fork, the brake, brakes the drivetrain stuff like that it might be then that the brands are unable to offer 
you know, five sizes, mm. for example, which, so it's all good and well having your heart set on a certain bike. I think it was, it might it's have Carrera, actually been. wasn't it? Titan X? Yeah, there's, I think there's that. And I think one of the calibers, I think maybe the okay. Line 10 is limited. I could be wrong on that bike, but I think it's, you know, those bikes are maybe only available in two size options. So it's great if you're, you know, someone like maybe me or you that kind of mm. can fit on either. But at the, you know, the shorter or the taller end of the spectrum, you might be seriously limited. So I would say best thing to do is get into your local bike shop, have a sit on the bikes, make sure you're comfortable on the sizes first and foremost, and that they offer something for you and really weigh up what it is you want to do. A full mm-hmm. suspension bike is going to open up more in terms of, um, what it's capable of. So, you know, a wider variety of terrain. Um, that's not to say you couldn't do it on a hardtail. You might just have less fun doing it on a hardtail. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I, I guess. That's subjective, isn't it? But... Of course it is. And I know there's, there's people out there that absolutely, you know, diehard hardtail fans that won't ride anything else. And they're mm. incredible riders and can do things that, you know, I could only dream of. Equally, uh, you know, I'm getting old. I want a bit of comfort. <laughs> and knowing that I can ride a full suspension bike and I could, you know, get offline a little bit, you know, for me, that would be a, you know, a bit of a saving grace. Probably, though, a £1,000, I would probably go down the hardtail route just to know mm-hmm. that, I'd, you know, maybe get a, a more solid spec. And, and some of those bikes, you know, Saracen have got some great bikes with their long, low, slack geometry. Yeah. Um, uh, and they're really, they're really worth considering, I think. Wicked. Okay. Um, this is one I sort of find quite an interesting question, Warren, actually. Um, and I've got a gravel bike on its way soon, which has got a, um, it's a SRAM Z-Tap group set, but it's got a, one of the X01 mountain bike rear mechs um, and a 10 to 50 tooth Eagle cassette. But um, if you go to the Shimano side of things, um, how wide a range can you go with Shimano's Di2 with a single ring? And can they use a mountain bike uh, cassette and maybe mech to get that... Um, well, to get a wider range on the back. And obviously, like, the mountain, the cable stuff is um, up to a 10 to 51 on the mountain bike with cables. Is what, What's the cross-compatibility between, you know, the mountain and the road stuff from, from Shimano? Um, I guess, you know, at first it sort of, it, it bears kind of understanding the uh, DI2, you know, as, mm. as, a, as a range across, across uh, Shimano's road systems. Because... Um, Effectively, not all the DI2 systems are equal. Um, right. So if you take Durace, you know, it's the premium, it's the pro- aimed at pro-level riders. Now, Durace is designed with a maximum cassette capacity of an 1130. Um, but then when you move down to Ultegra DI2, Shimano haven't just made that a cheaper version of Durace anymore. It's now much more broad in its appeal. Um, so you can go up to an 1134 on Ultegra. And then also there's the little outlier of the Ultegra RX DI2 mech, which... It's completely compatible across the across the board, but it comes with a clutch, um, you know, borrowed borrow from the from mountain bike, mm. which which is an essential if you're going to go to a single ring setup. Um, now, of course, we also have Shimano GRX. Um, this is their gravel stroke adventure specific group. Also has that clutch mech, and it has an increased capacity. It can go up to an eleven forty two. If you okay. if, if you want to go bigger than that, yeah, you can. You can switch in an XT or an XTR rear mech. It has to be 11 speed, obviously. Um, so, and you can mix um, road shifters with off-road rear mechs, but you can't mix um, uh, dralias, weirdly. So you can't have a road front mech with a mountain bike rear mech. They, they, okay. they, they, they won't work. And so if you did go down that route of sticking a mountain bike mech on the back, you can go up to an 1146. Um, so you can't at the minute go to a massive like 1051 you know as with you know shimano's latest um which you guys will know much more than me about so 1146 i think which should be ample you know um uh you know i've got a grx di2 bike that i've been running you know sort of long term now um that's grx one by um and i've just gone for the um 1142 uh, mm-hmm. Rather, I haven't got up to eleven forty six yet, and I actually I found eleven forty two is 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 pretty much you know I haven't got anywhere you know or climbed anything yet where I thought oh I really need a lot of gear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean I I you know you guys know more about the the mountain bike side of Di two 
than I do. I don't know if eleven forty. You know, Shimano can usually be quite conservative on on, on gear range. So I don't know if there's any aftermarket cassettes that you can push that eleven forty six limit any or. Rob, any ideas on that? Um, it's hard to say. Yeah, so I mean, using a mountain bike rear mech, they you know, there's there's a lot of options out there from the likes of E13, um, Hope Offer cassettes as well with a varied you know varying range. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm more. I guess I'm more in agreement with what Warren's saying in that I'm not sure you'll need to go too much bigger mm-hmm. um i think on the off-road side just because the climbs are that bit slower and more technical and you've got more obstacles to try and overcome on the hills then yeah you know being able to drop into you know for example the new uh 1052 that SRAM are offering mm. um i must admit i sort of i wondered if it was absolutely necessary when it first came out uh, and i actually i i was lucky enough to get the get a the cassette ahead of ahead of the launch and i i actually wrote i've written it quite a lot and i've used the the 52 tooth quite a fair bit <laughs> um so so i think yeah i i guess i guess um it's one of those things isn't it if if you're struggling right now there are options out there i can't say how easily compatible they'll be and yeah. some of them as well obviously will use different driver bodies and stuff like that so you've got to be really careful with not just whether it'll fit or not but whether it's going to safely work with the mech cause any other potential issues mm-hmm. i think on, on the mountain bike side we're probably um i guess more willing to have something kind of grumble along and maybe not sound quite so precise but on the road it feels like anytime i ride a road bike and things aren't quite right indexing's a little bit out or anything like that absolutely does my head in Mm. so you know i would go for you know try and make it as compatible as possible that would be obviously the key and um i'd maybe limit it and yeah like was says you know and stick with the 46 for now yeah do do you know was if um on the cable side of things the xtr or xt or well actually it's all the way down to deal now with the um super wide range 12 speed stuff does that work with um, Shimano's 12-speed mechanical shifters, do you know? Uh, well, uh, Shimano on the road hasn't gone to 12-speed yet, so... Oh. <laughs> so, so <laughs> there it, we go, yeah, probably not yeah, then. So probably not. I mean, you know, uh, if we if we switch over to the other side, over to SRAM, I mean, last week I was I was had a lot of miles on a, uh, a gravel bike with a kind of mullet build, so it's got, it's got an XO rear and a force front. So I, I was riding around with like a 1050 on the back. And to be honest, it it, it, it expanded the horizons of what a gravel bike can do. You know, I was looking at little bits of trail where I thought, oh, that'd be kind of fun on a mountain bike. And I was suddenly thinking, oh, I can do it on this. You know, I can try and mm. ride up that on this. And it, uh, you know, it was, it was almost like, um, um, it was like riding a sort of, well, an old, an old school, very, very lightweight XC bike with drop bar. So, and I, I, you know, I was, I was blown away by it, to be honest. It was brilliant. Like John Tomac from the 90s. Exactly, yeah. I just need a skin suit and a, a Tioga disc drive. Um, I'm away. <laughs> well, don't go out in the wind. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, we'll, we'll go back to the mountain bike question very quickly, which um, maybe uh, at some point in the future will have a bit of relevance to, to gravel riders as well. But, um, Louise, very quickly, how do you care for your suspension uh, in between services? So we're not talking those 40, 50-hour service intervals, but... On a, mm. on a day-to-day, ride-to-ride basis? Okay. Uh, I would start by saying, um, especially in the UK, no matter what, we're always going to be washing our bikes. Sadly, mm. we don't really have much choice. Um, so first, I would just say, be really mindful of where you're pointing the hose and how powerful it is. So avoid you know, uh, spraying the seals directly because water will penetrate. It will get in there, uh, and it will obviously over time cause damage and issues with performance and stuff like that um that'd be my first point the uh, next one would be keep the seals as clean as possible um so you know using a clean cloth um <clears throat> it could be anything from like you know an old t-shirt whatever it might be as long as it's clean and just getting in there getting inside and around the 
uh, the fork arch and just giving it a clean out. Don't let that sort of that gunky build up get in there because um, while it might not look like it's anything uh, too problematic, it could be that, you know, if it does become a bit gunky and sticky, you're going to get more dirt particles sticking to it, which over time will slowly, if you don't clean your bike at all, start to score the stanchions and that's mm. going to just cause more issues with, you know, keeping everything where it needs to be. You know, you're going to, if you start to score the stanchions, you might start um, affecting how good the seals are at sealing. And so more stuff is going to get inside, which is obviously a problem. So, yeah, it's just a case of keeping an eye on those. Uh, you can use stuff, um, certain brands, certain lubrication brands will offer, you know, dedicated uh, suspension lubes. So, so like a, a Teflon spray type thing? Yeah, no, well, normally like a sort of uh, silicon style spray. Okay. And so what the first thing I'd say with that is if you're going to use it, um, because it's a spray and it could potentially go anywhere, and if you're doing it outside and the wind blows it, cover your disc rotors up first. Mm. So use something clean, whether that's carrier bags, wrapped around tapes, whatever it might be. So keep your rotors covered and your calipers as well. Uh, and then um, you can just apply... Uh, just apply this sort of lube around the seals. Then you need to cycle the fork or the shock through a few times. And hopefully you should see um, any of the gunk or that's built up sort of around the lip or slightly just underneath it will hopefully come to the surface once that lube sort of penetrated in there. Then you just give that a clean off and then give it another quick coating. It doesn't need to be overboard, just enough, and then wipe off any excess. That should help, you know, to keep things running quite smoothly and it should, mm -hmm. you know, uh, prevent the seals getting too dry and cracked and stuff like that. Uh, not that that's generally a problem in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah. Um, if you're handier on the tools, I would say it's worth always, you know, whipping your lower legs off just for a, a lower leg service. But if you're going to do that, you need to check on the manufacturer's website to ensure that, you know, you've got the right parts. If you're going to do, you know, um, for example, lube the foam rings or swap the foam rings or swap the wiper seals and all that, make sure you purchase that kit beforehand and that you know that it fits before, you you know, you do a Friday night, take it apart and then can't get it back together and ruin your, your Saturday morning ride. Mm. Uh, and also make sure you've got the right tools for the job because where I think we're all probably guilty of... Um, you know, maybe not using the right things from time to time when working on our bikes. When it comes to your suspension, I don't think it's worth cutting those corners because you can cause, you know, irreversible damage that's really yeah. expensive. So making sure you've got the right parts is essential and the right tool, sorry. Um, and obviously, if you don't feel confident enough and something does feel a little bit wrong, just get in touch with one of the suspension tuning companies there's loads of really good ones out there. They offer a really good service, really fast turnaround, and they might even be able to recommend some setup tips and stuff like that for you. And they and it doesn't cost a fortune, and it and, and it does have a huge effect on performance. Yeah. I guess if you've been riding a fork or a shock for for quite a while and doing a little bit, you know, keeping it clean and stuff, but not having had it serviced, you know, when you send it off and then get it back it makes a world of difference it's that sort of gradual degradation in performance that you don't really notice from ride to ride and then you get yeah. it back from a service and they can feel incredible exactly exactly and 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 you know and it, and it might be that um if it's a year or two old it might be that those suspension tuning companies have you know potentially have upgrade kits as well you know that are included in the in the price and or, or sorry or maybe just a small add-on Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, really transform it, like you said, and it does make a big difference. But yeah. for the day-to-day -day stuff, I think the, the key is just keeping on on it. Keep, it, keep it clean, keep everything nice and clean, lubed where you can, and ensure, you know, you're always looking out for any marks on the, the shock shaft or the fork stanchions, you know, because that will lead to the bigger problems down the line. Okay, then I think we'll we'll finish on two very quick um, sort of setup geometry sort of um, questions. Uh, so on the roadside, uh, so we've got a guy who's new to riding on the road, and while my current bike feels pretty comfy, I'm still not sure it's spot on for me. 
Someone mentioned it might be worth playing with stem length. How do I decide what stem length is right for me, Warren? Um, well, the the old roadie rule that is, if you're sat on your bike, your hands on the hoods, and you look down at the front hub, um, the bar should ex- completely obscure your hub, basically. Um, okay. You know, most of us just stick with what the bike came with, but there are plenty of variables out there in in not just stem length, but also like angle. You know, if you think most road bikes have a seventy three degree head angle, if you took that to an extreme and got mm-hmm. a stem with a minus with a minus seventeen um, on it then that stem would sit absolutely parallel to the ground. Um, but most stems can be flipped. So if you prefer a little bit more of an upright position, um, you can flip the stem and have it slightly pointing upwards. You know, they're normally around minus or plus six degree. Um, but stem length really, um, aside from the fit issues, uh, it, it's really going to f- affect the way the, the bike handles. Um, if you think a long stem, that effectively gives you a longer steering arm. So it makes your bike feel less responsive, less less twitchy. It's really good at speed. It makes it really nice and stable. You know, if you think of like a steering wheel on a truck, um, that's the sort of thing where you're aiming for. Whereas you went to a shorter stem, you're shortening that that um, steering arm, which makes it much more responsive steering inputs. Um, but that can be detrimental making the bike feel stable at speed. You know, if you think of like the steering wheel on a Formula One car, you know, it, it's that sort of thing. So big chart, you know, big part of stem choice is really personal preference. Um, on mm-hmm. how you like a bike to feel, um, but what I would say is don't go too short as you feel cramped. You know that your your you know your arms are totally bent with your you know your elbows sitting alongside your uh, alongside your trunk as it were, uh, and don't go so overlong that you're overextending so you find it hard to actually control the bike. Um, you know it, it's uh, with, without going and getting a proper fit, it's a very difficult thing to to judge it autonomically. You just more have to go on the way it feels. But I'd say if he's, if you know, if uh, if our, our you know our guy posting the question um, says it feels comfy, then maybe it's it's handling he wants to slightly tune. Would it, would it be would you suggest maybe um, if if this person is looking to you know really get into road cycling in a big way and maybe this is the first bike but there'll be bikes down the line? Do you think it would be worth investing in a bike fit? Oh, I think so, definitely, definitely. You know, it doesn't really matter how long you've been riding. Um, I'd always recommend a bike fit. Uh, it's just good to have, you know, but what I would say is whenever you go for a bike fit, don't just, don't make it a one-way conversation because you can get a thing where you just get the, the bike fit as particular preference. We'll try and impart on you. You know, you you know, you might be a time trialist and go, right, we want to get you as fast and as aero as possible. And you go, but, uh, you know, I only go for Sunday runs with my mates to the pub. Um you know, it's got to be a two-way conversation. And the other thing you have to, you know, um, remember is um, bike fits are a good regular thing for, for any serious cyclist because as you get older, you change. You get less flexible, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you might get be getting more knee problems. You might, you know, there are all these things. Um, or, or conversely, you know, as you get more into cycling, you might get fitter. You might have lost some weight. You might have got more flexibility, you know. So it's always good just to, to have a, you know, a reassessment, as it were. Okay. Do you know roughly how much a bike fit costs? Oh, they they tend to vary, and you know there are a lot of brands now. When you're moving into that higher bracket of bike, um, that almost build it into the, you know, build it into the process. You know, especially okay. you know as we're seeing a lot of brands are going to a more kind of semi-custom kind of thing. You know, if you think of someone like Specialized, when you're looking like their S Works bikes, um, they positively encourage you to to go and get fitted for a bike. Especially now mm-hmm. when you're getting bikes that got far much more integration. You know, if you've got a fully integrated, you know, internal cable routing system, so it's vital that things like the the steering length is cut perfectly, you know, they tend mm-hmm. to want to get you in and get you on a jig and, and see how you know how to set it up. Because the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you end up buying a bike that's far too slammed for you, it's completely uncomfortable. Uh, and you know, you just end up having to having to get shot of it, you know. Cool. Okay, so maybe, um, yeah, worth having a play around uh, and maybe think about getting a bike fit then. Yeah, I think bike fit, you know, you're probably, you know, generally you're probably looking at about £100 for a pretty okay. comprehensive one. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, spending hours on a bike might be worth uh, worth that investment. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, and speaking of bike fits, uh, Rob, uh, is there a trick for working out uh, your mountain bike bar width? So, you know, buy a wide bar, 800mm, um, people chop them down. Um how do you work out how far to chop it if you want to? Mm. Okay, this is yeah, 
So when you said it's a really short <laughs> okay. answer. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, so I would say um, you can cut, you know, if if you ride regularly and you're fairly experienced and you know what works for you, obviously that's a good starting point. But if you've just bought a new bar and you use lock-on grips that you're able to, so normally the ones with a lock-on either end, so they don't have a clo- enclosed mm-hmm. bar end cap, essentially, you can slide those grips in. Yep. So you could measure in, you know, slide them in and slowly in, you know, five mil increments, work those grips out until you sort of feel comfy. You just need to bear in mind that you've got, you know, massive bits of uncut bar mm-hmm. either end, potentially ready to slam yep. into the tree or kebab <laughs> you if it all goes wrong. Um, I know a lot of people go by um, getting into the presser mm-hmm. position and seeing where their hands comfortably feel. Rough, you know, sort of going roughly by that, whereby you don't feel that you're overstretched and doing a push-ups really hard. Because, you know, you think, think about when you're riding the bike and you are pushing yeah. against the bars a yeah. lot, you know, when you're going through undulations and stuff like that. That's essentially what you're doing. It is, you know, obviously it's a more complex movement on the bike, but more or less it's a kind of push-up, right? So getting into that press-up position and seeing where your hands feel comfortable, roughly what width, and then taking that and transferring it onto the bike. Then there, of, of course, our, our good friend and colleague, Sam uh. Stott, has worked out a way you can roughly calculate this. Um, Yeah, so you take your height in centimetres, you multiply it by 4.25, and it should give you your bar width in millimetres. Although saying that, I did that, and it (laughs) actually came up... (laughs) No, it actually came up um, 731 mil. And I normally ride... I must admit, I normally ride uh, 760 okay. pretty much for everything um, because I haven't got particularly wide shoulders. I don't need a super wide bar. I felt, and I played with bar width quite a lot, and I think I only went up to the slightly wider bars when I started riding 29 mm-hmm. more uh, back in, what, 2013, 2014? I went from 750 to 760 just because I felt like the bigger wheel needed a bit more, a bit more, you know, mm-hmm. a bit more leverage to get it turned. And I, you know, I, I made that switch and it was a, it was a positive change. I, I might play around with it again. Uh, I listened to a different podcast where they were interviewing uh, an enduro racer. And it's quite funny how narrow those guys yeah. are going with bars just so they can, well, if you think the speeds they're riding those trails, trying to thread between mm. trees, you know, going so fast. And I don't think any of the top guys are on anything like an 800-mile bar. You know, Richie Rude's running, I think, 740, right. 750, and he's yeah. a big guy. Um, so I think it might be something that I revisit mm-hmm. down the line. But, yeah, generally speaking, go too wide and you're going to be, you know, you're going to affect how you can ride the bike. It, you know, you're as soon as you start to stretch your arms out so far that you know you're effectively not able to then absorb the bumps and the jumps quite so well with your arms because they're straighter rather than being more flexed. Then it is going to have a detrimental yeah. effect, you know. And <clears throat> and too narrow, uh, providing you're running the same short stem, is going to make things feel really twitchy and harder to control. So you know, as with anything, if you can play around with the wits, you know as we said at the beginning of this answer, you know, move your grips in, have a feel, have a play, um, and go from there. Okay. But, but check it before, you know, obviously it's always measure twice, cut once, mm-hmm. that sort of, that old analogy. You've got to, you've got to stick to that because, you know, <laughs> handlebars, if you go out and buy a hundred quid, you know, carbon handlebars and end up chopping mm. them down way too much or uneven, <laughs> yeah. even worse, then, you know, you, you can't just take that bar back on, unfortunately. Totally. Okay. Has, we'll go on more. Has anybody, ever, has anybody ever looked into um, the effect of bar width and uh, aerodynamics? Because surely if you're running like a super wide bar, you're spreading your arms wide, you're just almost creating a sail kind of sort of thing, you know? 
I guess it's it's that sort of. I'm sure they are. I'm sure people have had a look at it. I don't know how much uh, is in the public domain with regards to that. I'm, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it is totally relevant. I guess it's a case of balancing how much uh, that'll affect your aeroness, your aero shape, and and how negative that could impact on your overall time if you're racing yeah. versus how in control you feel. But I mean, if you've got the top guys at EWS running, you know, when you think about how many bars are sold at 800 mil now, and then you stick some grips on, which might, you know, actually not run all the way to the ends of bars, might stick out. So you're making the bar 810, maybe mm-hmm. even more. And how many people are just willing to just leave them as they are and run them just like that? It is kind of worrying. So I think it's a really important thing to play around with, not necessarily to make you more aero, but just to give you the right amount of control, ensure that you're in the right position on the bike, that your arms can effectively you know, work as part of the suspension to absorb the trail. Um, yeah, So I, and, and I think if the top guys can run super narrow bars, it's, it's, I think it's a sort of, it's a trend maybe we need to move away from. And I think, I remember back in the day, everyone just assumed that, you know, people like Sam Hill were running these massive, massive bars. And the reality was they were cutting them down straight away. It was only the likes of, you know, Greg and Steve who needed, at that point, Greg, Steve and uh, Nathan Rennie were running um, extenders in right. their bars to make them a bit wider. <clears throat> so if you're really tall, it makes total sense. But, you know, I think for the majority of people, you, you know, you need to play around and get it right if you want to make the most of the bike and the handling. Totally. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And, um, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there. We've got um, we've got a big meeting in about 12 minutes, so uh, we're going to make a run for it. Um, but, yeah, thank you for your time, Rob. No worries. Thank you, And Tom. Uh, thank you, Warren, for that. It's, uh, yeah, some really interesting stuff today, I think. Cheers. Thanks, Tom. That was, that was interesting. I enjoyed that. Excellent. Well, um, if you have enjoyed it, um, which we hope you have, don't forget to subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast. Um, we're doing podcasts every Monday and every Friday, so uh, plenty to get your ears around. And um, yeah, we'll do another one of these Q&As in about four weeks' time. So uh, thank you very much and uh, have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.